Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It was a boiling hot afternoon in San Francisco in September of 1966. A police officer pulled his patrol car up next to a Buick in San Francisco's Hunters Point neighborhood. Inside were three black teenage boys. They hopped out of the car, which police would learn hours later was stolen, and two of them ran. They started running, and I by this time stopped my car, and I jumped out and I yelled to them to stop. Stop when I talk to you. That's Officer Alvin Johnson in an interview from that night. Exact accounts of what happened next differ, but all agree there was a short pursuit. And the boy saw me again, and I said, will you stop and let me talk to you? Hold it. And I had the gun in my hand, and I said, hold it, I'll shoot. The boy continued running with his hands up. And the boy was running down the hill, and I put the gun in the air, and I shot three times in the air. And I shot one shot in his direction. And I ran down there, and I saw the boy lying flat in his face, and blood out of his mouth. The boy's name was Matthew Johnson. His family called him Peanut. He was 16 years old. The officer shot him in the back, and the bullet pierced his heart. He died within minutes. An eyewitness would later say all four shots were aimed at the boy. What came next would be a defining moment for San Francisco's Black residents. And in many ways, it's similar to what we're seeing play out on the streets across America in 2020. This week on Bay Curious, we look to movements of the past to understand where things might be headed today. And we learn how protests can lead to change. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. Hours after 16-year-old Matthew Johnson was killed by a San Francisco police officer, a crowd assembled. They demanded to know if the officer was being charged for the crime. A local police commander said they were investigating, and the crowd was not pleased. At that time, the Black communities were 
Hunters Point, Fillmore, Lakeview, and uh, North Beach. Daryl Rogers was 18 at the time and remembers how word of the shooting spread. And in all of those areas, people were very upset and they were, come on now, you, you just shot this boy in the back. At first, a small protest broke out in Hunters Point. Protesters threw rocks and broke the window of a drugstore. The next morning, the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle read, Several hundred youths roamed the poverty-stricken neighborhood, breaking windows, hurling gasoline-filled bottles and bricks, and looting stores. Five persons, including a policeman and a fireman, were injured, and more than a dozen fires ignited. The unrest grew, spreading to other neighborhoods. It was soon called the worst outburst of racial violence in the city's recent history. City officials set a curfew. Unlawful assembly area, you will move out right now. The governor called in the National Guard, bringing 2,000 troops to San Francisco streets. And all of a sudden, military troops started marching down our streets with bayonets, you know. What did I think? It's a police state. <laughs> we're, we're, we're being invaded by our own people. Before the shooting, the Black community in San Francisco was already on edge. Unemployment was rampant, and discriminatory housing policies isolated Black residents in just a few parts of the city. What would eventually be dubbed the Hunter's Point Uprising was the culmination of decades of grievances that had gone ignored. And like now, it was a police killing of a Black person that set a match to that kindling. The sense was, finally, others were seeing our frustration. That was the sense, is that somebody else finally got a chance to see what we were seeing every day. That frustration went far beyond San Francisco. Black people across the country were fed up with police brutality, inequality, the lack of jobs, and discriminatory housing practices. July 1967, Newark, New Jersey, goes up in flames reacting to a rumor that police had beaten and allegedly killed a local man. Residents protested, peacefully at first, but then the scene turned violent. Local and state police clashed with protesters in the streets of Newark, New Jersey. 26 people were killed. Just a few days later, it happened again in Detroit. There, 43 people were killed. Triggered by another police action and another angry protest gone haywire, the destruction of downtown Detroit was worse than Newark's. The nation watched on TV as Detroit was torn apart. Soon, protests erupted in more than 100 cities across America. White society labeled them riots. Protesters called them rebellions or uprisings. Turns out this difference really matters to the kinds of policies that get made afterwards. The ways in which police used excess force in black neighborhoods is something that has enraged Black people for decades, if not generations, and continues to be clearly a, a source of enormous anger and, and grief. Omar Wasso is a professor of politics at Princeton. He spent 15 years studying the impact that the protests of the 1960s, both nonviolent and violent, had on public policy. What we see in the early 1960s is a movement that uses nonviolent tactics, often met with uh, brutal state repression, and that those moments of repression capture the media's attention, generate headlines that feature the word civil rights. 
These nonviolent movements gripped the country, like the March on Washington. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Less than a year after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. The next year, 25,000 people marched 54 miles from Selma to Alabama State Capitol in Montgomery. The country looked on as the police chief used horrific violence against largely peaceful protesters. And public opinion moves to thinking civil rights is the most important problem in America. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. Five months after the Selma to Montgomery marches, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed, aimed at removing barriers that kept Black people from voting. But not everyone agreed that nonviolent civil disobedience was the most effective way to make lasting change. And despite those big political wins, many Black Americans didn't see improvement in their daily lives. In the later period of the 1960s, the protest movements escalate to greater levels of protester-initiated violence. There's still debate about why the civil rights movement went from largely nonviolent civil disobedience in the early part of the decade to more violence later on. One theory... When the national law says you are an equal citizen, but then a police officer treats you as a second-class citizen, maybe in the past you were willing to tolerate that, but no longer. The kind of constant reminders that you are second class became intolerable and escalated to really aggressive resistance to that. Another take, the problem wasn't with Black America. The problem was that white America didn't actually want to change the racist institutions that kept them in control. Some Black Americans believed that if they wanted better treatment, they had to force white America to give it to them. It was here that the violent protests of the mid-60s came from, when they were covered by the media, the headlines were no longer about civil rights. The headlines then focus on crime and riots. When the public is asked, they say crime and riots are the most important problem in America. Wasso says that shift in public opinion led to law and order candidate Richard Nixon winning the presidency in 1968. Violence can be a kind of amplifier of, of protester concerns. Violence can also cause the public to turn against you. For some protesters, like author and activist Kimberly Jones, the message of these current protests is the same as it was in the 60s. Enough is enough. Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And they are lucky that what Black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. So we've learned that how the media portrays protests helps shape public opinion and ultimately public policy. Of course, things are a little different in the media today than they were in the 1960s. One thing that's really different is the ways in which cell phone footage um, is just pervasive. Everybody has their cell phone up. It's like a concert. Everybody's, you know, documenting what's going on. Looking at the videos that have come out since George Floyd's death, Wasso says it's hard to know which way public opinion will go in the long term. There's been footage of looting and property damage, but there's also horrifying images of police mistreating protesters. 
the most recent wave of videos shot by civilians suggest, whoa, 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 you know, what the police are doing seems to be violating rights. And, and that may be what predominates, but, but it's just so fluid right now, it's hard to know. One indicator of where things might be headed, a poll released last week showed 76% of Americans believe racism and discrimination are a big problem. That's a 26-point jump from 2015. According to the New York Times, never before in the history of modern polling has the country expressed such widespread agreement on racism's pervasiveness in policing and in society at large. Freedom must be won by each generation. This is Daryl Rogers again, the San Franciscan who witnessed the protests in 1966. Watching thousands of young people rally their communities all over the country has left him feeling hopeful. The thing that I would say to America today is learn the lessons of 66 and let's not turn things back. Let's keep pushing forward. This episode was recorded and produced by Katrina Schwartz, Asala Sanapur, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our engineer is Rob Spate. Special thanks to Paul Lancor and Erica Aguilar. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 